Good afternoon. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that the idea a computer could hold a conversation, even offer advice, was squarely in the realm of dime novels, TV shows, and sci-fi movies. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. But today, that long-dreamed-about technology has finally come of age. Voice recognition software now makes it possible to control our phones, televisions, even our cars with our voices. That is thanks in large part to the work of Nuance, a software company based just up the road in Burlington, Massachusetts. They are the folks behind this. Where can I have lunch? I found 14 restaurants whose reviews mention lunch. Twelve of them are fairly close to you. That is, of course, Siri, the popular iPhone 4S feature that has been a game changer for voice recognition. And while Siri doesn't have the control issues of HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey, it works by all accounts pretty well. So where does voice recognition go next? Here to discuss that is Vlad Shanova, Chief Technology Officer at Nuance. Welcome, Vlad. Hello, Good to have you. you here. So... Um, how does this work? <laughs> I, I was I was looking at uh, my – I got a voice message today at work and we have this new system where it transcribes. Somebody calls me and it transcribes. It's completely unintelligible. It doesn't understand it, anything that the person is saying. So we aren't there yet here at WGBH as far as voice recognition goes. But how does it, how does it work? Well, we, we have made immense strides in this field over the past number of decades and – um, there are still situations where uh, speaker's accent or the noise yeah. conditions are really severe. But more and more, we can do a pretty good job uh, transcribing or understanding what words were by, spoken by by a particular speaker without any training required. And um, I think what's really interesting right now is that we're going beyond just understanding the words that were spoken, but actually understanding what they mean. That's, that's what, really exciting. That's the part that I don't understand. How can voice recognition give me directions or tell me what the closest Mexican restaurant is? How do they translate that? So um, speech recognition and natural language understanding are fields that bring together lots of really disparate disciplines. There's electrical engineering, there's a bit of AI, there's uh, linguistics, artificial Artificial intelligence, reasoning systems. And it's one of those, it's it's an aspect of this pursuit that makes it really interesting and attracts a lot of people who are who would like to sink, them, sink, sink their teeth into problems that are very multifaceted. And uh, over the many decades that we've been at this, we've developed um, really kind of a big repertory of techniques that can assign meaning to particular word sequences. Uh, and more and more, we can learn how to do this from examples. So large data has played a uh, large part in improving the performance to where it is today. You know, I'm still I'm still trying to you know get my wrap my head around it because, it, for instance, a point A to point B directions. I mean, do you, do you have to be that specific? Do you have to say what state you're in, what zip code? I mean, do you have to be very specific in order for Siri to understand it? So, um, at the uh, at the root, these systems recognize patterns, patterns in the signal of the speech of the audio, and patterns in the sequence of words that are spoken, and they learn how to assign particular meanings to that. And um, we've also become quite good at using context and a knowledge of what the task is, what the user has done in the past, mm. what his or her preferences are, and kind of uh, combining all of that information to determine the best possible outcome. Um, it might be a transaction with customer care automation. It might be a navigation task in the car or on your phone. Uh, it might be extracting medical facts from... Um, a patient encounter the doctor's dictating. What are, what's the background of your company? How did you get into this? It's an interesting background. Um, the Boston area has been a hotbed of speech recognition research for, for decades. And in fact, a lot of the same people who've been at it for, for this time are now working at Nuance. And so there are folks from uh, companies like uh, Kurzweil, Applied Intelligence, Dragon Systems, SpeechWorks, and a number of others, as well as a lot of new new hires. So the company is uh, over 6,000 people worldwide. Uh, Boston is one of our principal centers, but we have others in Canada, Europe, um, elsewhere in the U.S. Um, And uh, we are trying to develop this speech and language understanding technology really across the board for applications. Is it 
Is it universal? Because why do we need more than one other than for competitive reasons? Do we need more than one voice recognition software? If it's universal and it can be applied, I, I assume it can cross languages too. Yes, we, we, we cross languages. This is, uh, these are really early days for speech recognition and natural language understanding in spite of what it can already accomplish today. Uh, there's a long way to go. Uh, these systems are going to become smarter, uh, more useful. I think that's the best way of viewing them as these very powerful tools that allow users to access information, content, services, whatever device they're using, wherever that content or services are located, in the cloud, on the device. And uh, there are a lot of ideas to be explored. And so it's not just us, but a multitude of startups. Some of the giants are working on this as well. There, I was reading an article about IBM who's concerned about using it internally anyway. They were saying that they're, they're afraid of uh, privacy issues. They're afraid of competitive issues, that if someone discovers the kinds of questions they're asking or the kind of responses they're getting, that that information is out there, as you say, in a cloud or it's somewhere. Uh, it's accessible or it can be retraced or you know, regurgitated in another way. How do, you, how do you respond to that? Well, I can't speak specifically about IBM's concerns, but um, many of our customers implement these systems, what we call on-premise, where they actually host the computers that run uh, the software within their data center so they control all the, all the data and the data flow. Um, for other applications, other customers prefer to host them um, uh, on our premises. So you can the tailor make it to however you want. Absolutely, yeah. yes. So does, does, if I have, yeah, let's say, Siri uh, on my phone or something, do, do, do I have to tell it what language I speak, or if I, if I, can I, could I go from Italian to French, from English, or would it? Would, would, do I have to set up some parameters if I'm going to be using it? So you know, I can't comment specifically on Siri, but um, in general, we are able to detect languages automatically. So we we have now deployed many multilingual systems. These are particularly important for in-car navigation, mm -hmm. especially in Europe where you might have a uh, French driver driving through Germany and pronouncing the local place names. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> so just by the nuance of the way I'm saying it, even with a bad accent, I take it, um, it's going to be able to pick it up. Or, or does yes. it get confused? It's got to get confused, no? Well, it's, uh, this is a, a statistical uh, process, so it's, uh, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, it's, it's very powerful. And it's all about um, reducing the inconveniences that uh, users encounter when trying to use their devices or, or access information. Right. So not having to tell Google the system or, yeah. which language you want to use or which service you want to talk to, uh, or even sometimes having to turn your phone on to talk to it. That's coming as well. Mm. You sh you'll be able to speak to your phone that's lying on the desk and say, um, make an appointment for tomorrow with so-and-so, and it should wake itself up understand that it's your voice, actually compare your voice to others to make sure it's really you, and then just do it. Now, what about things like slang and idioms or drawls? It's all just... That's all part of the game. You know, we, we have to understand the way our users speak to us and not force them into unnatural behaviors. And this is really what's marked the progress of speech recognition over the past years is transitioning from a place where we impose great constraints on the user. You have to train the system. You have to speak like this. You have to wear a headset to where the technology is disappearing into the background. And it's the task that's present. What do you want to do? What do you want it to do? Can you see an opportunity for this? I'm, I'm thinking of even like the tedium of certain kinds of depositions in, in, the, in the law practice or not necessarily a, a trial court, but, you know, just the, just kind of things where you have to go through a pro forma question and answer. Would that be possible, that, that the voice could ask the questions as opposed to the other way around? Um, well, um, you know, that's, uh, that's an ambitious scenario where you would have, uh, you'd require a sufficient intelligence yes. in the system to kind of know what to ask next. Right. And I don't think we are quite there yet. But we're certainly capable of then converting the responses into usable text, a searchable text, and as I mentioned earlier, in the healthcare uh, market, we automatically extract important medical facts, and we can populate electronic health records, saving the doctors and the hospitals a lot of cost. By, but by asking the questions, well, or getting uh, or prompting the typically, responses. Typically, doctors, after seeing a patient, pick up a phone somewhere on the hospital floor and s dictate at this amazing, astonishing rate 
what they saw, what, what they think is going to happen next, possibly a diagnosis, possibly prescriptions, hang up the phone. Traditionally, trans, human trans, transcriptionists have to type that in, uh, and somebody then has to enter the relevant facts into a database, and that's a very costly and laborious process. Today, they can happen automatically. So it just streamlines that whole care dispensation process. Mm-hmm. What about beyond phones, cars, television sets? I mean, can you know, your car, you've got a rattle in the car. I mean, seriously, is, is this going to be a way we're going to be able to diagnose things this way? Well, you'll certainly be able to ask your... Or turn on the French Open. Can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> you'll certainly be able to um, ask your car a question uh, consulting the manual. How do I do this? Yes, good one. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's a light blinking at me. What does it mean? Mm. And uh, you'll be able to say it. We'll be able to understand it. Actually, look up the relevant passage in the onboard manual and, and interact with you in that respect. So this is really what it's all about: is just easing the access to all these services. The information's out there. There's this amazing pent-up supply of valuable stuff out there that's hard to find and hard to consume today. Mm-hmm. How far are we away from that? From voice recognition in a car, or I'm not kidding, a television set? That should be even easier because it's. Stationary, it's like a computer. So this might be surprising, but to date, there are about 70 million cars with nuanced speech technology in them on the road already. Um, going forward... What kind of cars? Be, are they high-end cars or just any car? It's, it's a broad range. Um, some, some of the ones you might be familiar with is, for example, the Ford Sync. Uh, um, but going forward, cars will have more powerful onboard computers, and as well, we'll be able to connect to the cloud, to servers. So transparently, it'll be able to do take dictation, do searches, access information for you. Of course, I'm thinking more conspiratorially here now, and I'm wondering if the government is involved in this in a big-time way, too, in terms of, you know, investigating people or going after tax scoff laws or, or you name it. I mean, are, are you involved in any of that stuff? Well... I'll tell you that the government's very excited about the uh, increased driver safety uh, that, that comes from introducing well-thought-out speech interfaces in the car. Oh, it so really if you start slurring your words, you can't turn on <laughs> That's the... That's a possibility. <laughs> Seriously? And what, I, what, what are they excited about it? It reduces driver dr- distraction compared certainly to uh, the things that most drivers do that like they what? shouldn't be doing. For example, texting, checking mm-hmm. their email. So you can do it by voice rather than... Te- yeah, there's a no. terrible case going on right now, and Haverhill just started today, about a young kid who was texting while driving and went off across the median and, and killed the other driver. And what you're saying is that that communication could have been taking place by voice communication without looking down. That's to- right. Entirely, you know, undistracted, uh, eyes busy, hands busy, purely a voice interaction. Mm-hmm. And that's coming. That's coming very shortly. Really? Now, what about military aviation? Is it is it there as well in terms of pilots speaking commands to you know incredibly fast jets and that kind of thing? Yeah, yes, there's uh, there's work being done there. Um, it's a challenging environment, as you can imagine, because uh, one thing I learned very early on is that at times when you most want speech recognition in the fighter co- cockpit is are the times when it's really hard for the pilot to speak. <laughs> these incredibly high G turns, and it's really difficult to actually get words out. Uh, but, you know, closer to home, we do work on very challenging acoustic environments, for example, the living room. So you can imagine if you're watching television, there's a program going on, there are other people in the room, and uh, we now have techniques that allow us to pick up your speech and possibly your gestures. They can control the programming, uh, allow you to search for your favorite program, program the uh, recording of the same programs. Coming soon, even being able to um, message your friends, access social media, set up a video call. All these mobile devices are really becoming more similar, whether it's the car, whether it's the TV, the tablet, the mobile phone. Hmm. We want to do the same things on them. Talking to Vlad Shanova, he's the chief technology officer of our Nuance, a voice recognition software company based in Burlington, Massachusetts. So what I want to know, going back to the, I'm always not conspiratorial, but I'm curious if this can be used as a tool, maybe even in law enforcement, is all of this data retrievable? Let's say, let's say it's, uh, you know, back in, I don't know when it was, 1994, when O.J. Simpson murdered his wife, and they, let's say everybody had cell phones on then. Could could you have heard what was going on? Could could if even even if they weren't talking directly to the phone, could that data have been? 
you know, taken in somehow and then retrieved in a way? Um, I don't believe so. Um, yeah, How, how uh, can you discern whether I'm talking to it or to some – let's say I'm in an argument or a discussion with you and I've got my phone on. How will it discern whether I'm talking to it or to you? Well, I really can't imagine a scenario where um, you or I would be comfortable carrying around a device that on its own volition would be listening to and sending your ambient speech and noise. But why wouldn't do that? Why, why couldn't it do that? If I'm, if I'm talking to you in the car um, – I guess what I'm getting at is how how is it going to know the difference between me talking to it and talking to you? Well, technically, it can um, it, it it can listen to you and decide whether you're actually asking to do something. But there's a big difference between doing that and then sending your speech somewhere else, where it can be transcribed and sent off to a law enforcement agency. <laughs> right, That's a contract between okay. you and the, right. and the manufacturer of now the though, device and the software. If every time I ask it something or get some data from it, will that be part of the record? Is that data going to be collected somewhere? That really depends on the sort of data retention policy of the provider of the service, possibly your automaker, um, and uh, you as a consumer will be able to view that and scrutinize and decide whether you're comfortable with it and whether yeah. you want to opt out of it. So, but... But the, the devices always have kind of an ability to be sort of passively listening if they want to. If you, if you allow it, if you enable it, it will be a setting that the user will be able to control yeah. and say, uh, do I prefer the convenience, understanding that the contract I have with a provider uh, gives me assurances? Or if I'm not comfortable with that, I will not enable that feature. So what are you most excited about where, where this is heading? Well, um, I think we really are entering an era where we're going to see the fundamental user interface completely revolutionized. So we've been working with, uh, you know, very satisfactory and very exciting visual kind of desktop metaphors. We have application icons that you find and you open. Um, But with speech and natural language in the user interface, you as a user will be able to speak to, to information that's not necessarily visible on the screen. So you can imagine you're kind of shortcutting through that visual organization, that hierarchy. It could be onto the device or off the device into the cloud and say, I know I want information about this restaurant from my favorite restaurant review site. And you can just say that and it'll grab it for you and bring it to you. And will it put it in a text form or will it bring it to me in a voice form? It might might bring it to you in whatever way you want, as voice or as the web page of... um, of that uh, provider or as an application launch. So is it going to put Google out of business? (laughs) Well, um, I think it's going to change the uh, search business to some degree, uh, possibly substantially, in that for many kinds of uh, transactions or information, you'll be able to go directly to the owner of that information rather than going through these intermediaries. That is really, really exciting. I'm I'm still a bit in the dark ages, like I said in the opening. I couldn't even get I couldn't even translate one of the voice messages I got today, and I don't I don't have one on my phone yet. So I guess not everybody does. But Vlad Shenova from the Chief Technology Officer from Nuance, which is a voice recognition software company based in Burlington. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate you coming in. All right, up next, do you know someone who has a problem with manipulation and a lack of empathy? What are the chances they're actually a psychopath? We'll find out. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and Lincoln, introducing the new 2013 Lincoln MKS with continuously controlled damping or CCD. You can learn more at Lincoln.com. Lincoln, now it gets interesting. 
And it's your move. It wasn't a matter of whether, but rather when and how. Lynn Falwell and Janice Armour, co-owners. We clearly thought that WGBH would be the place to be. WGBH's listeners are discerning. They're well-established in their homes in many cases. And we thought it might be a good match for us. And in fact, it has been that. It's just all blossomed for us. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. Who should be first in line for an organ transplant? That's a hard call for doctors to make. I mean, let's face it. I want my patients to get transplanted. I care more about my patients than I care about patients in another city in another part of the country. That's why I think we can't be trusted. How doctors are being kept honest in the wait for organ transplants. Today on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon at 4 here on 89.7 WGBH. Saturday, July 14th, it's the WGBH Fun Fest. Cool off with some of the best ice cream around, like Ben and Jerry's Boston and Friendly's. Rock out to live performances from family favorites like Steve Songs, Ben Rudnick, Fluky and the Beans, Rick Golden, and others. Meet PBS Kids characters, enjoy rides, games, and more. Tickets are going fast, so don't delay. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash funfest. Two big environmental no-nos. Food scraps dumped in landfills and methane gas emissions coming from dairy farms. I'm Tony Waterman. Hear how one Massachusetts farm is turning those two negatives into power. Tomorrow on WGBH's Morning Edition. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. Okay, it's time to talk about psychopaths. Well, almost psychopaths, not Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer's, but your boss or your neighbor or your boyfriend. Two Harvard researchers are here to talk with me about their new book, Almost a Psychopath, about identifying behavior in the people we interact with on a daily basis that closely resembles that of a psychopath. They say that one out of every seven people demonstrate the characteristic traits of a psycho, lack of empathy, huge ego, disregard for the law, and obsession with making money. And I'm going to welcome here to the studio Dr. Ron Schouten of the Harvard Medical School and co-author of Almost a Psychopath, along with Jim Silver, former federal prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney, also co-author of Almost a Psychopath. Good afternoon. Welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you very much. So how did this collusion come together, the two, the doctor, the lawyer? Did you say, you know, we see a lot of these people. I mean, I think I've... (laughs) You know, <laughs> involved in a couple of people just like this. I mean, how did you figure out that there was this almost category? Well, actually, the the notion of uh, the almost effect is uh, was developed by Dr. Julie Silver, who's the editor of books at Harvard Health Publications, and we have a ser- related to you. Related to me. Related oh, to, yeah. Okay. That's why yeah, I'm doing the plug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so Almost an Alcoholic is out first. Yeah. Uh, Almost Addicted is coming next. There are several others planned. Ours is the second in the series. Yeah. There's a website for this, www.thealmosteffect.com. Uh-huh. And the concept is that uh, there are a range of symptoms and behaviors that are problematic that cause distress to an individual and others around them mm-hmm. that fall short of... A for, reaching a formal diagnosis, uh, what we call in medicine a subclinical subsyndromal disorder. And so with psychopathy, we find the same thing. Like what, are the, what do you have to be to be a full-blown psychopath? Well, it, a full-blown psychopath, and again, that's not what, really what our book is about, but a full-blown no, I know. psychopath has um, – there's a test called the hair psychopathy checklist, and that has 20 different – um, characteristics that are evaluated by a mental health professional, such as Ron uh, or somebody who's trained to use the um, the uh, psychopathy checklist. And what you're talking about for a true psychopath is somebody who's incredibly manipulative, who's always conning, who has no empathy for other people, somebody who's willing to use violence uh, or any type of underhanded means just to get what they want uh, in a way that is more than just the occasional, even extremely bad act. It's a history of this kind of behavior, and it sort of uh, – the way I like to think about it is true psychopathy reveals itself. You can't know it from seeing one bad thing, but when you see a history of it, that's when you know you have a person who really isn't operating under the same sort of moral constraints and behavioral constraints that the rest of us are. Now, the almost category, can this include just a, a vast range, uh, you know, spectrum of people that may have some or a few of these traits? I mean, couldn't we be talking about – potentially millions of people? We are. Uh, the estimates are for full-blown psychopaths about 
1% of the population, so that gets us to about 3 million. And for people who fall in that subsyndromal, almost psychopathic range, about 15% of the population. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. What right. we, we like to look at is, is you know, 15% is, is maybe 45 million people. And if you think about that in our country, that is the, the equivalent of the entire populations of the state of New York and Texas put together. It's a lot of people. How does it happen? How does someone come to uh, have some of these qualities, like a, a lack of empathy or this obsession with finances? And, and I've seen this before. I mean, it, and you bring it up in your book, too. You say it's largely associated with men. And I have to say, I do largely associate all of these qualities with men, although I'm sure, you know, there are women and children. And But where does it come from? Where does it start? Who wants to start it, there? As with most things, it's a combination of nature and nurture. If if we look at full-blown psychopaths, there's very strong evidence of genetic predisposition, differences in how their brains function and how they're structured. There's probably some of that with people who fall into the almost range as well. But you start with someone who has that genetic predisposition and then you put them in an environment with others, with parents who have been like them or exposed to social forces around them where they learn that this is the way to survive and you get those uh, characteristics and traits strengthened. Hmm. Uh, but the lack of empathy does seem to be something that's... Uh, Universal. Well, and, and psychopath and quite physiologically based. Hmm. What about the lying aspect of it? I found that fascinating too because there are just... People who, I mean, you discover it later, you say, the whole thing is made up. The fabricator, the prevarication, it's like goes, it goes on and on and on. And they're very great at convincing you that it's all true. And then you peel, start peeling back. The, it's like, And then confronted with it, it's like it's... Well, that's actually a really good happen. point. You say when you're confronted with it. Yeah. Um, and that's the key thing is um, everyone lies once in a while. Sure. A white lie here or there. Yeah, yeah. Think about a, a true psychopath and also an almost psychopath to a lesser degree as somebody who's not embarrassed to be caught lying, who doesn't even feel anxiety about telling the lie. Uh, most people, when they're telling a lie, you, you like to think you can spot a liar. Yeah. They're sweating. They're nervous. Their <laughs> eyes are flitting about. But if you're almost a psychopath or a psychopath, you're not doing that. To, to you, it's the same as reading off your grocery shopping list. It has no real um, emotional impact on you. And I think what happens is over time you learn that lying is a fairly effective way to get what you want. It's a tool you can use and it's easy for them. Usually you associate lying with, you know, worming your way out of a situation or um, disguising something that you've done wrong. But lying in the case of a psychopath is just a total sort of fabrication and out of nowhere, like, like, like Clark Rockefeller, you know, the guy here who, and just one thing after another and, oh, yeah, I've got a job lined up with GE next week and I, you know, I, you know, I have a couple of things lined up and they're offering me $750,000. I mean, just like you didn't even ask and they're telling right. me these things, right? It, it's a great point. And these people will lie about little things, things that don't matter. Um, yeah, I went to Starbucks this morning. I went yeah. to Dunkin' Donuts. No, you didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I guess I was mistaken. I mean, yeah. it rolls off their back. And they are, and again, physiologically, these folks seem to have a decreased uh, response to punishment, to getting caught. They're not worried about it. And backed into a corner, they will just continue to spin a yarn because the more open and honest they are with you, the more likely most of us are to say, oh, they must be telling me the truth. Hmm. So they would just give a very glib answer with the hope of putting you up. And if they get caught, it really doesn't matter. Is it stuff they think about in advance? Because, you know, the old, what is the old edge? First we practice to deceive. How's that go? You know, yeah. Oh, what a tangled <laughs> web we weave. Right. And, it, and it's, you can't remember what, what you told people, but can, can almost psychopaths remember what the story is? I, I think they, they, they probably do. I mean, they do practice this. This is, this is part of a, um, a pattern in their lives. This is how they live. So they're probably pretty good at it. But I don't think they have any um, special facility for remembering lies or some type of you know, photographic lying memory. Um, they also tend to be – they're good liars in that they do it easily, but they're not necessarily smart liars. They're pretty impulsive and they just lie all the time. And what they depend on, I think, for success more than the ability to remember the, the lie is to trust us to believe them. We want to believe people when they speak to us, yeah. most of us who yeah. aren't almost psychopaths. Uh, and people who are psychopathic rely on that. And even if they change their story mid-course, um, they're probably going to count on you to try and think of some rationalization in your own head, what maybe you misheard or misunderstood. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that they're genius liars, but they're 
good at it, and they do it all the time. I mean, one other way to think of this is um, we talk about reactive or reflexive violence and predatory violence. Lying goes along those same lines. There's reflective, uh, reflexive um, lying that people will engage in. Just you say something to me, I'll tell you a different story. And then instrumental lying. The instrumental lying, because people in these categories uh, are often conning and manipulative, can be quite intricate and very well planned out. Mm. Talking to Don, Dr. Ron Shouten of Harvard Medical School and Jim Silver, and they are co-authors of the book Almost a Psychopath. Well, what about the obsession with financial gain? Is that sort of a proxy for an obsession with power? I mean, I mean, I've known a few people in this category, too. Once again, you didn't ask. Before you know it, you're hearing this, you know, just un- unbelievable and and. and I I have believed it in the past, but this whole thing about jobs and money and, oh, my parents left me $500,000 and, gee, I, I'm going to write a check tomorrow and pay off my mortgage because it's, it's like obsessive, crazy, you know. I, you're all nodding like, yeah, I mean, I've heard of this. Like, what the heck does that come from? Well, you know, if you were a person who was um, really egocentric, and that's another mark of a psychopath and almost psychopath, is they're egocentric and they really want to fulfill their own needs at the time. Um, part of it is is to feel power, to feel status. And that's – they know that's the way to do it is to convince you or those around them that they have power, they have money. Um, and again, they're, they're, they'll just say it at the drop of a hat. Again, like you say, you didn't ask – uh, but they know that you, yeah. they know that you'll, you'll respond to that. <laughs> you'll respond, and they know that. That's why they do it. And, and the distinction here, I think, you know, the psychological term is narcissism. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to ask about the differences. We go okay. finish your thoughts. So, so there's healthy narcissism. It's the thing that allows us to get up in the morning and and do the work we do and go out and and talk to people and feel confident in ourselves. That's healthy narcissism. Then there's pathological narcissism, and pathological narcissism is so over the top. It's uh, really a response to a void in the person's personality. They need to fill in that void because they have pathologically low self-esteem. So how do I make myself feel better about By my – making hum- you feel worse? Well, my humble origins and the fact that I don't have a lot of money, I'm writing a check to pay off my mortgage. Yeah. I'm giving Jim a million dollars. No, I'm not, Jim. Yeah. Um, or say something like um, – I'll say to you, you didn't ask, but I'll say – you know, Ron, I'm having the best year of my life. I have never made more money. You didn't ask me. Correct. You, you know, somebody will come, something, something like that, you know. And it, is part of that intended to make you feel bad? No. Well, it's more it's, – it's probably both and it depends on the individual. But at the heart of it is really an effort for the person who's telling that story to make him or herself mm. feel better about themselves so that you have a better impression of them. I see. So it's not necessarily intended to make you feel bad. But it can be. I mean, if for an aggressive person with aggressive narcissism like this, they may be wanting to put you down to bolster themselves. It could be. It could be in a work situation. I mean, mm. you know, bragging about work they, they didn't do, taking credit for things yeah. they didn't do, um, puffing themselves up so word gets out at the water cooler. Hey, so and so is really doing fantastic. Boy, they're on the fast track, uh, and, and they'll intentionally do these kinds of things because. Um, it not only does it make you feel bad, it maybe clears the way for them to get what they want, which is maybe to get ahead, to get more money, um, even though their reputation might be built mostly on lies or subtle conning. All right. So going back to the issue you raised a minute ago, Ron, the differences between a, a narcissist and a psychopath, because when I was reading, I mean, a lot of them have exactly the same qualities, self-aggrandizement, you know, over-ego, lack of empathy. I mean... What, are the, what is the difference? Well, there's a lot of blending there. And psychiatric diagnosis is not you know, a highly refined art. It's really – it's an attempt to categorize symptoms. So if you look at the current manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, now going into its fifth edition, uh, the personality disorders that most relate to psychopathy are in cluster B. They include borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. There's lots of overlap as we as we go through in the book and we talk about the differential diagnosis of people who appear to be almost psychopaths. What could this be from? So yes, there is a lot of overlap in there. The antisocial behavior, uh, the thing about narcissists and uh, people with borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. What's histrionic mean? I mean um, Hysterical, okay, you know, sort of over the top, flamboyant, overly dramatic, is that these folks tend to feel almost too much emotion. They're dealing with very deep emotions that they experience, and that's what their behavior is a response to. 
whereas psychopaths and almost psychopaths to a large extent have a very limited capacity to experience deeply felt emotion. Is this something you can talk to people about? I mean, is that your experience? Can, 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 can people recognize this in themselves? I'm not sure they really recognize it in themselves. Um, you know, as we point out in the book, you know, almost psychopaths and psychopaths um, are difficult to treat because they don't think anything's wrong with them. They think maybe you have a problem, um, but they're used to doing living the way they live. Their brain may be physically different from yours. Um, and so they're, they're not really likely to think there's anything wrong with them because they're not seeking help because they feel bad. They don't. They don't, They're not, no. No, they, they, they feel great. They feel great. Um, <laughs> actually, psychopathy has, has, you know, the people who are true psychopaths have a marked lack of anxiety. So what's wrong depression. with it? I'm serious. Well, so it, what? It's so, a great it, question. You know, just because somebody's lying to me or self-aggrandizing, so what? If it was limited to that, maybe so what? Um, but it isn't limited to that. With true psychopaths, what we, what we find is it's not just the emotional part and it's not just the interpersonal, the lying, the conning. There's really serious antisocial behavior that goes on. We're talking about serious crime, although not all psychopaths are serious criminals. Psychopaths, when they are criminals, tend to be much more violent than other criminals. Mm. When they're in prison, um, psychopaths who are diagnosed in prison and then uh, released on parole. Yeah, but we're talking about this almost category, okay. which is probably not a criminal element for the most part. Maybe not, but may, they may be doing still things that are antisocial in, in the regards of um, maybe small crimes that just don't get reported. I mean, it's important for people to know only about half of all violent crimes in the United States ever get reported. Only about 40% of property crimes ever get reported. So lots of crime never gets reported, especially things that are a little bit smaller. Also, they're going to leave, uh, almost psychopaths are probably going to have um, you know, really bad relationships at work. They're going to leave things in a mess when they move on, and they will move on. They're slightly impulsive. Uh, they're not likely to stay anywhere for one long period of time. Also, personal relationships, uh, broken, bad marriages, relationships, children who aren't attended to. So there, there are lots of behavioral aspects to this that are, that are mm -hmm. social ills that go beyond the, the lying and the um, egocentricity. And, and going, um, you know, going a bit away from criminal behavior and more around relationships, areas where we see huge problems are in exploitation of other people, exploitation of children, so child abuse by professionals, by individuals in the community, uh, exploitation of, um, of uh, patients by therapists and by physicians. We've had a huge response in reaching out. Um, and we talk, we have examples of this in the in the book of individual patients who have been sexually exploited by their therapist, and wonderful response from the people at the therapy exploitation link line uh, commenting on the book. Uh, you know, doctors, lawyers who exploit each other, caregivers who exploit people, mm. uh, and so those may not rise to the level of criminality. Yeah, Domestic intimate partner violence situations, yeah. which are criminal mm. in many ways. And people are locked into those because they're conned and manipulated into those relationships. So there's a huge amount of damage that gets done well below the level of the full-blown psychopath. As long as we're here defining narcissism and psychopaths, what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? The um, <laughs> Not much. It's all it, rolled it, into one, isn't well, it? When it you get right down to it. It depends on the nomenclature. Some people say in the psychiatric community tend to refer to all as psychopaths. Sociopaths are often... I see thought of uh, by others, say criminologists, as sociopaths are more aggressive and more likely to be involved in criminal enterprises. Like, like, like murders or? Correct. You know, ag aggressive, violent behavior, whereas psychopaths is a more general category. You must have seen a little of this in your line of work. Absolutely. In criminal law, we do tend to see a lot of people who are, <laughs> who are uh, either themselves psychopaths or almost psychopaths. Or when I used to be a prosecutor. I'd see the mm. victims. Uh, people who would say, literally, I cannot understand how... So-and-so could have done that. It could have done it. I'm not sure I understood it either because it, it is a mystery. Until I really started looking at this and, and, and doing the research and working with Ron and realizing that um, this isn't uh, an act somebody puts on. This isn't uh, one particular day in which they were uh, uncaring. It's their life. It's just it's, the way they are. It's how they are. And it, it's important to understand that. All right. Stay with us more with Dr. Ron Shouten and Jim Silver, including what you can and should do if your child is showing signs that he or she might be a psychopath. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGVH, Boston Public Radio.
WGBH programs exist because of you and Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers presenting their auction of science, technology, and clocks Saturday, June 2nd at their Marlboro Gallery featuring an English fossil collection and prominent watch and clock collections. SkinnerInc.com And Blake & Associates at Old City Hall, a Boston law firm with over three decades of experience in trust law, estate planning, and advocacy. They listen and understand the issues you face. BlakeLaw.com And from members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be? Next time on The World, a frontline journalist travels to southern Yemen. An al-Qaeda leader tells her his group has brought order and basic services to local towns, but his ambitions go beyond Yemen. He's not saying we want to run a little town under Sharia law. He clearly said our war is with America and its allies. Filming al-Qaeda in Yemen, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals. Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. Bigger and better than ever. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us. Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. I'm talking with Dr. Ron Shouten and Jim Silver, authors of the book Almost a Psychopath, about the traits and characteristics of people who border on psychopathy. And we, right before we went to the break, we were talking about children. Do children, do the kids develop it early? And if so, how? And can you recognize signs? Is there a way to cut it off if you, if you see it? We're uh, very reluctant to assign diagnostic labels of, of psychopathy to children because there is hope for, for addressing these issues in kids. Uh, children tend to, pre- to present with something we call callous and unemotional traits, um, cruelty to other children, cruelty to pets, to animals. Uh, indifference to punishment, uh, not responding to parents, uh, sometimes conning and manipulative behavior above and beyond the lying that's considered a normal part of of child development. Uh, So we do see these traits, and sometimes they are predictive, but they're not dispositive in terms of saying this this child will definitely turn into a psychopath as an adult. I mean, how can you know, though? I mean, we were talking about nature versus nurture. I mean, if if a kid has been molested um, by by either a relative or even a stranger, would that kid be more apt to do that? I mean, you you read about these cases where it seems like that is the case. I'm not sure that being molested would necessarily – the research shows that uh, that child will grow up to necessarily molest himself or herself. Um, And the important thing to remember about psychopathy, and we really want to emphasize this for parents is, like Ron said, there's normal lying, normal conning that goes on as part of a childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of a childhood. Children are cruel to each other on a playground. I imagine if you went out on a normal uh, elementary school playground, you, you might think everyone's a psychopath. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and what teenage, you know, what parents sure, of teenagers yeah, sure. hasn't, hasn't heard about lying and conning. Um, but I, I think what happens is, as I, as I was saying, it, it, psychopathy reveals itself over time. And it really is important. Even when we're looking at psychopaths or almost psychopaths as adults, we have to look at their whole life history. Uh, that's part of the process of, of trying to categorize somebody as a psychopath or almost psychopath. Um, so the, the, there isn't, as Ron said, the, the callous and emotional traits that some children show aren't necessarily predictive. And there's no, there's no direct correlation between a certain type of behavior and the certainty of mm. being an almost psychopath. Um, and so that's why we, we're, I think most researchers are hopeful that they could be helpful to children. But it would be important to look for these traits. I mean, we can't help people if we don't look for it and try to find it and address it. Well, well, when's the flip switch, Ron? At what point do you become no longer a child and you're really well on your way to being essentially an almost psychopath? Well, I don't think we we would uh, formally diagnose anyone before their teens. Uh, there are some instruments out there for rating psychopathic traits in children and adolescents. There are 
in development. There's a fair, fair amount of good research with them. But again, we hold off on doing that because we don't want to uh, condemn this person to that label because it's a pretty damning label. It is. And, and that's the other thing. Most people out there, I'm assuming from your book and from what I've gleaned from the conversation here today, have no idea that they have it. They're perfectly happy in, with themselves and who they are. So why would they ever even hear such a diagnosis? They would never even be told that. Who would tell them? Um, too often it's a court clinician uh, after they've gotten themselves in trouble with the law and they are um, evaluated in, in the courtroom and, and as part of the criminal justice uh, system. May come up in divorce proceedings, uh, child custody battles, uh, we, our group, the Children of Law Program at Mass General, has done a number of custody evaluations where the first time this ever comes up is, uh, you know, there's a child custody evaluation and both parents are evaluated. And what comes across is that there are strong psychopathic traits in one of the parents. All right. I brought up the issue earlier of men versus women. It seems like, and you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, <laughs> but there are no more men who have this disorder, wherever you want to describe it, than, I, I than think, women. I think that's right. I think that um, one thing that's important to note, too, is, is a lot of the research about psychopathy is done in the criminal justice system. Um, that's where people get diagnosed as, as psychopaths, um, is when they're in prison and they've been ordered into therapy or into treatment or into some type of program. Um, it, the research does seem to show that probably more men who are incarcerated are psychopaths than women. But um, I think the statistics are somewhere along the lines of maybe 20 to 25 percent of the uh, uh, male prisoners are psychopaths and maybe 15 percent of the women. So it's different, but there are definitely female psychopaths and female almost psychopaths. They're out there, um, whether they're diagnosed through the criminal justice system or, or through some other court-appointed process. Um, there are women who are almost psychopaths or psychopaths as well. And one of the things we touch on in the book is that there is a bit of gender bias in right. how – diagnostic labels and symptoms are attributed. So a lot of the same characteristics that you would find uh, find in an individual, a woman uh, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. In fact, more women are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. More men are, are um, diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Right? Hmm. There's an awful lot of overlap in, the, in those symptoms. And the same is true uh, with regard to psychopathy and, and almost psychopathy and borderline personality disorder. So I think there's a lot more research needed to look at this issue of gender bias and how we assign those uh, diagnoses. Are there professions where almost psychopaths really thrive? You almost need it to do the work. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Wall Street, maybe some other areas, you know, banking, insurance. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's, there's been a lot of talk lately, you know, articles in, in the New York Times, and there's been this idea that, that there's a, a much higher level of, um, of psychopaths on Wall Street. Um, and, and it is true that some of the characteristics of a psychopath might be helpful in a high-pressure, win-at-all-costs kind of job, you know, lack of empathy. If you need to shut down some business where people are going to lose their jobs, uh, but it's good for your client, then if you're, if you're uh, a psychopath, that's easy, easy. for you to do. Hmm. So, yeah, there's definitely some traits where it might, it might be useful. But on the other hand, there's, there's also, for a full-blown psychopath, that along with that sort of lack of empathy and that cold-bloodedness, also comes so much conning and manipulation that, that it, it may ultimately be problematic. For an almost psychopath, I think there are certainly some professions, um, perhaps even lawyers, who, uh, where it might be helpful to be able to be egocentric, um, to be good at, at uh, manipulating and conning people. Uh, in some contexts, we expect people to do that, use car salesmen, maybe lawyers, salespeople. Um, so there's those types of professions, it might actually be helpful to have some of these characteristics. Not that either one of you wants to diagnose John Edwards here, but I mean, here's an example of somebody who, I mean, I think he, he had good intentions. I mean, he, you know, although he, here he started in the law, he was a high power lawyer and he got big money for all kinds of dreadful cases that he represented. And then he kind of dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And then the big, the little lie and the big lie and then this phantasmagorical thing and then believing that he was doing it for the better of the American people and really what he was doing is hiding an affair from his wife. I mean, you're, you're nodding, right. but... Well, you're right. We're not going to talk about people in the, in the news. In fact, there's an ethical prohibition yeah. against that for us. But um, I think the thing to keep in mind is the issue of pervasiveness. We're not just talking about someone who strikes a tough deal and says, well, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. Uh, or someone who tries a case and, and really wins one that they shouldn't have won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about behavior. Uh, we're talking about 
emotional traits that are pervasive throughout the person's life. They are not only remorseless in the courtroom uh, or on the sales floor, they are remorseless in their personal life and when they're dealing with the neighbors, mm. right? Uh, and so those are the people that we're talking about in this book where those characteristics are present throughout their social Doesn't and, come and on professional suddenly. lives. Yeah. By the way, is there any correlation between IQ and psychopathy or – are they attended? Are they smarter? Are they? You know, what, is there any correlation at all? Initially, they were they, the, the the person sort of initially brought this idea up. Uh, this guy named Hervey Cleckley, and he described them as being above average. Who is this now? His name's Hervey Cleckley, uh-huh. and he described psychopaths as being above average intelligence. Yeah. But I don't think there's research to support that idea that they're smart. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, street, I mean, street smart, street smart. I mean, can able able to fool most of us. Uh, not necessarily a higher IQ. Clark Rockefeller. <laughs> Yeah. They appear very intelligent. They they know the words. You know, um, they have the words, but not necessarily the music. I mean, they don't quite get it right. Mm. But some, I mean, there, there's a case of a guy. I mean, we can diagnose him. I mean, he he's basically his whole di- adult life, and you know, he tripped himself up. But if he hadn't done that stupid thing with his daughter, he probably would have been living that life to the second. I, I think. You know, I don't know him. Uh, I've never evaluated him. But someone who engages in no, but a, Jim does. <laughs> a, I, I do know. I, I was. I did represent Mr. Rockefeller partially. Um, I, I, I really can't talk about him in particular because of that. Right. Yeah. Well, he, he's got bigger fish to fry. He's he's in deep, deeper. I mean, and it, and that all fits too. That talk about remorseful, remorseless. That he Correct. could essentially off two people, which my words, not yours. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a fascinating book. It's Almost a Psychopath, Dr. Ron Shouten of Harvard Medical School, and Jim Silver, former federal prosecutor, current current criminal defense attorney. And that's been discussion about Almost a Psychopath. And as you you both said, I think we all know people who fit neatly into that category. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow at noon with Kathleen Turner. No, not that one, but the one who was recently named Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. And stay with us now for the Callie Crossley Show coming up next. As we all know, if you're in the mood for a midnight movie or a... Have a 2 a.m. craving for something. Boston may not be your town. Callie discusses why the city shuts down so early and whether it's such a bad thing. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, citizens banning, banding together to turn back that Supreme Court ruling on Citizens United. Oh, this is one of my favorite songs. That's tonight on Channel 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon. Let's get